Radio Mano Papachango. and all of you wonderful tangentially speaking audience around the world. My name's Eric and I'm just uh, driving 500 kilometres from the city of Perth down south to a little town called Cowgan River uh, on the Southern Ocean uh, in Western Australia. I just listened to your podcast conversation with Stephen Jenkinson, uh, an incredible human and uh, yeah, what I perceive to be a true elder, as I see you to be, Chris, and it was a wonderful conversation that brought me to tears, I must say. Um, the authenticity and rawness is uh, is much much needed, I think, and, and uh, I certainly feel desperate for those moments, and yeah, thank you again for, for providing such a beautiful uh, conversation to us all. Uh, peace and love. Ciao. Thank you, Eric. Um, yeah, if you haven't heard that conversation with Stephen Jenkinson, it's uh, it's worth checking out in the archives. Uh, it was about two years ago, um, and I know it was about two years ago because, strangely, um, I had been trying to get Stephen on the podcast for a while. Um, he'd been a very popular listener request guest for some time and and we'd been in touch and he was um on tour promoting um i, I think it was his a book um but he does these uh musical events where he he talks and there's a band and it's this whole sort of multimedia thing he was on tour doing that and uh came through LA and the only day that he could possibly do it was i think it was a sunday morning and uh, that happened to be the day of the memorial service for my father, who had died uh, a few weeks previous to that um, in early September. So, yeah, I, or maybe it was a month or more than a few weeks. I don't know. But it was around this time of year. I remember it was autumn. And, of course, Stephen Jenkinson, if you don't know, is um, someone who has helped hundreds or maybe thousands of people through the transition from this life into whatever comes next. So it was very poignant, that conversation with him. Um, anyway, thank you, Eric. Uh, Eric sent that in months ago, and uh, those snippets have just piled up, and I haven't been burning through them as as quickly as I should be. Um, I don't know. Partly, I feel like if I put three of them at the beginning of every episode, they kind of get lost. And uh, so I like to highlight maybe just one or maybe I'll do uh, another one of those Romas where I uh, play a bunch of them and, and respond to them. We'll see. Anyway, I love them and uh, keep sending them in. I don't know when I'll play them, but I really appreciate hearing from you guys out there guys and girls and men and women and old men and old ladies and everybody. Uh, hopefully no children listen to this podcast. If you're a child listening to this podcast, stop it. Go do your homework. 
Now, before I get into talking about uh, the guest this week, which is Eric Weiner, who's a, an author uh, who wrote a book about philosophy called The Socrates Express. But anyway, before I get, get into talking about him, I want to segue from uh, telling children not to listen to the podcast to our sponsor, the sponsor for this particular episode of Tangentially Speaking is Lilo. Lilo, as you may have heard on this podcast previously or on other podcasts, is the manufacturer of the best sex toys you're going to find anywhere. Uh, they are made from very high quality materials. They're waterproof. You can use them in the shower. They're USB rechargeable batteries. Some of them have Bluetooth. I mean, we're talking space age stuff here right now. Um, if you use the coupon code Chris Ryan, you'll save 20% on all full priced items at Lilo.com. In fact, to coincide with this episode, we're giving away a Sona 2 Cruise. Check it out. Uh, they're worth 139 bucks in the U.S. Uh, and we're only doing this in the U.S. because shipping overseas is, is a hassle. I'm sorry. I know you people in Australia and Europe and elsewhere. You need your pleasure too, but uh, you're going to have to just order it directly from Lilo. We're giving one away in the U.S. Head over to my Instagram account, that Chris Ryan, for details. You'll see how to uh, enter for the giveaway. Um. Yeah, so go to check out uh, the Sona 2 Cruise at the Lilo site, lilo.com, and uh, you'll see it's a pretty interesting device. We're going to be giving away three different vibrators, so if this isn't your style, uh, ladies, or your ladies' style, gentlemen, um, you can wait for the next one. But this is an interesting one. I didn't even know these existed until recently. So it's... Uh, it's a vibrator that basically is like a little suction cup for the clitoris. Um, so here's what it says on the website. It says, without making direct contact, the Sona 2 Cruise's new generation of sonic waves offers fast yet gentle clitoral stimulation for mind-blowing pleasure. The silicon has been engineered to absorb sonic waves and transmit them to your clitoris for deeper but gentler sensation. I mean, if I had a clitoris, I'd want to know what the hell that feels like. Um, and like some of their other uh, vibrators, this one increases intensity when you press it against your body. So just by, you know, your sort of natural intuitive like that feels good, you press it harder, it works harder. It uh, increases the intensity of the vibrations or the or the um, sonic waves in this case. Um, yeah, check it out. And uh, yeah, so if you're into the clitoral orgasm, now I, I, this is one of these sex things that people ask me about all the time that I don't know if there is an answer. Here, there are a few of them. One is, what is squirting? Is that real or is that urine or what? It's it's not urine. I've seen studies and it's not urine. What is it? Where is it coming from? Um, largely unresolved as far as I know. 
Uh, it seems like there's something similar to a prostate gland in women's bodies, um, but some women have it, some women don't, some women have a lot of it, some women have a little, I don't know. The other thing that I'm asked about a lot that I don't really know the answer to is vaginal versus clitoral orgasms. Are there two different types of orgasms or are they just orgasms that women are experiencing differently? Um, is the so-called vaginal orgasm related to the fact that the clitoris also can be stimulated from inside the vagina? These are, these are mysteries. Yeah, or maybe I'm just out of touch with the latest research on this area. In any case, uh, this uh, particular vibrator, the Sona 2 Cruise, is focused on the clitoris. All right. Now, I hope that hasn't uh, embarrassed my guest. Um, but I do need to say that if you go to Lilo.com and you order anything, whether it's the Sona 2 Cruise or any other vibrator, fully priced vibrator, you'll get 20% off if you use the code Chris Ryan at checkout. As I said, this episode is with an author named Eric Weiner. He wrote a book called Socrates Express, a very interesting book about the relevance of philosophy and philosophers uh, to the modern world and to our individual lives. Uh, had a lot of fun talking with Eric. He's a cool guy, very good writer, and I highly recommend the book if you have any interest in uh, philosophical approach to life. And hey, everyone does, right? How can you not be philosophical, especially in these times? These are times that require or that call out for careful, global thinking. And by global, I don't just mean worldwide. I mean thinking about things holistically in their entirety in context. And uh, this is what philosophers strive to do and uh, strive to teach us to do. And uh, Eric, of course, has striven to help us learn from philosophy. You know, philosophy is something that it sounds so highfalutin, and um, and I'll admit, when I was in college, I took a philosophy class. I think Eric and I talked about this. Uh, I took a philosophy class, and I basically barely got through it with a C, and I think the only reason I got a C was that the teacher was a friend of mine, kind of, or she was more of a friend of, of another teacher who I was very close with. And um, to fail me would have probably made her social life a little awkward. Um, I It was horrible. She was not a good teacher, and although I'm sure she would say I was not a good student. But she, what she failed to do was to show any relevance. She sort of wallowed in the aspect of philosophy that is like, you know, too smart for normal people to uh, understand very specialized language, very um, kind of uh, exclusive. And by exclusive, I mean you're not in the club, right? You have to learn all this 
you know, nonsense in order to understand what the fuck anyone's talking about. Uh, I rebelled against that, and I guess that was the clash of heads that led to me not doing well in the class because my feeling is, look, you can be as philosophical as you want. You don't need to be incomprehensible. I felt the same way about literature, you know, like a lot of 20th century literature, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, uh, a lot of these guys were writing in such a way that it was very difficult to understand what the fuck they're saying, which to me is the opposite of what a communicator should be doing. You know, if you're writing in a way that makes it difficult or speaking in a way that makes it difficult to understand what the fuck you're going on about, then I don't think you're doing a real good job of communicating. But for a while there in literature, uh, there was this this movement, this exclusivity, this sort of like, oh, you know, the normal people don't deserve to understand what the fuck I'm referring to here or, you know, what this obscure uh, language means. Um, I think that's a big mistake in any art form. You know, music can be uh, very subtle. And one of the reasons I love Rick Beato and I'm sure you, if, if you're new to the podcast and you don't know what I'm talking about, check out Rick Beato's show on YouTube called What Makes This Song Great. And what I love about what he does is he shows how popular songs, Tom Petty, Stevie Wonder, Steely Dan, songs you've heard on the radio, he unpacks them and shows you how fucking brilliant they are, how well put together they are, how, how well thought out they are. So I'm not calling for simplicity. I'm not calling for an absence of subtlety and artistry and sophistication. But I am saying that that sophistication should not become a barrier to enjoyment or to understanding. So you can listen to, uh, you know, Beethoven sonatas or his late quartets, or his symphonies. And you can just go, fuck, that's good music. And you don't know what the oboe's doing. You don't know how Beethoven is making all these subtle adjustments and doing things that no one had ever done before him in terms of time signature and, and you know, how strong each instrument is playing over the others and so on. You don't know, but it sounds fucking awesome, right? So you can be a great communicator, um, without being an exclusive douchebag, I guess is what I'm saying. And what Eric Weiner is doing in this book, Socrates Express, is showing how these great geniuses had things to say that are relevant to our lives in the here and now, and that they are not some distant, incomprehensible, um, you know, fountain of nonsense. All right, I guess that's enough for me in this intro. Keep it brief. Uh, I've had a lot to say about mask wearing and politics and the state of the world and recent Romas, so I'll leave it at that. Uh, as soon as I finish getting this together, I'm going to go record a video Roma out here in front of the amazing Sangre de Cristo Mountains in Colorado. Um, so if you support the podcast through my website, tangentiallyspeaking.com, that chrisryan.com, 
or chrisryanphd.com. It all takes you to the same place. If you are a supporter, you will have access to the video Roma where I will. On camera, you can see my pale old face um, answer questions that people send in and uh, talk about whatever the hell else comes to mind. I am going to play you out with a song, uh, sort of a, you know, a, a, a shout out to Eric, who um, was driving to Perth. It's an Australian band uh, playing. They're covering a tune. The tune's called Big Jet Plane. It's it's a hypnotic song. I don't know if I've played it before on the podcast. I, I don't think I have. But it's a song I listen to a lot. And I came across it. Um, I was watching a, a, you know, I went down a YouTube rabbit hole and it was a show. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a radio station in Australia and they invite people in. It's kind of like a tiny desktop concert, you know, that NPR does. They invite bands in and they play in studio and, um, they were covering this tune called Big Jet Plane. The song was written by Angus and Julia Stone. Um, so they did the original. But the version that I first heard uh, was this band playing in the radio station. And to be honest, I don't know if it's a band or if it's just this dude, this rapper. Um, but in any case, uh, it's Tuka, T-U-K-A. And uh, it's featuring Sarah Corey, who sings the the female part. Um, and I just found it to be super hypnotic. I love. I liked it so much. I found it and downloaded it on iTunes. Bought it, and then I went and got the original. Uh, there's a live version. There's an acoustic version by Angus and Julie Stone, which are also fantastic. Um, and I don't know if it's just because this is the first version that I heard. Um, but there's something kind of gritty and just deeply sincere about this song and the way it's performed. Um, and so uh, Eric reminded me of it both by being Australian and being, you know, driving in the outback and uh, and also his comments about sincerity and authenticity. Um, so, Eric, if you're listening, I hope you dig this tune. Um I fucking love Australia. I, there's something I've known a lot of Australians over the years. I haven't spent a lot of time in the country, but um, uh, <laughs> not to sound like a racist, but some of my best friends are Australian. Uh, it's true. And there's something about there's some kind of, um, yeah, I guess it's the authenticity and sincerity that I find in what I have found in Australians. Um that I really admire. Anyway, this is Big Jet Plane. Hope you enjoy this conversation. I grew up at the end of a long dirt road. No street lights, just a couple trees. You could probably see the wallabies bounding around in their brown fur coats. Most days were the whole way home. Jigging my step, nothing but the air in my lungs, filling my breath, singing my songs that I wrote in my head. And every now and then, when I look up at the sky, I can see a cuckoo fly. I begin to daydream, think about my wingspan, just the sun around the globe. So everywhere I go, it's summertime. 
wonder when people get stuck in the same place Got me thinking about what they say Oh fuck it, take them by the humble pie Don't you worry about what they think Politicians only think about its net worth From East Sydney to West Perth Topping then a Cape Bay You put the legwork in but you get burnt out That's why you sing piss every payday Hey, have you ever gone away? Do you ever think about a holiday? Are you in the business of making money? If you haven't got a dollar then I guess you gotta wait, wait. Maybe we can win the lottery Get high by the beach, a line of Del Rey Maybe you can follow my lead Get fly like a kite in the breeze And same publisher i do <laughs> at the moment yeah well, that's a coincidence yeah how it was ben your editor ben uh was my editor is my editor so uh we have i think that in common as well yeah perhaps yeah yeah ben uh ben has edited both my books at two different publishers excellent he's good yeah. he's yeah. good he he performed uh, what he called editorial liposuction on my book yeah he's uh he's rough uh, he's such a friendly guy in person. Uh, and then, I mean, I don't know, maybe your manuscript was uh, in perfect condition when you sent it to him. But oh, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> he uh, he almost takes a, a perverse kind of pride in his, um, I don't know, like no gloves approach to editing, I think. Yeah, it's, I think it's your classic passive aggressive editor technique. <laughs> um, <laughs> They're nice on the outside, but you get them alone with the manuscript and a red pen, and 
Yeah, yeah. But I like. But we love Ben. We love we do love Ben. Uh, yeah, I've known Ben a long time now, it's over a decade probably. Um, and uh, yeah, he did. He did admit to me at one point that uh, I said to him, "So are you? When are you going to write a book?" And he said, "Oh no, I'll never write a book. That's too hard." I said, "Okay, good. There's a little respect." Yeah, but he he can edit them. No problem with that. Um, yeah. So yeah. you know. Thank God for that, because we need we need editors. So yeah, we do, and and they don't necessarily need to be um, kind kind in the editing. Kindness is not really helpful. Well, you could argue that it's an act of kindness, like a surgeon. Are they being kind if they uh, remove you know a tumor from your body? Good point. Um, at the time, it hurts like hell, right? Um, and there's recovery, but overall, it's an act of kindness, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. In the moment, no. <laughs> he could use a little anesthesia, at least. Come Absolutely. on, Ben. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, so, listen, I've uh, I've read uh, three or four chapters of your book in the, in the uh, introduction, uh, so I won't pretend that I've read the whole thing, because I hate when people do that to me. And they think we can't tell, you know? <laughs> or how about they haven't read anything and they pretend that they've read it, you know? <laughs> and, they, and they think, and they ask a question that you, you know, address in chapter one and they're acting like they, they pretend that they've read the whole thing and you're like, man, you've already blown your cover. So Right. But you can't people, say that because you look, you know, mean. Yeah. Unkind. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, but I do want to say I really enjoyed what I've read and I will read the rest when Avid Reader Press sends me a damn copy. I got the, the PDF oh, is what I've been looking at. It's not the same. No, no, it's no. It's not no, the same. No. You, no, need, no. you need the copy with the, I know you can't see this because it's radio, audio, but you need the you need the physical dead tree versions, what you yeah. need. So tell us about the Socrates Express. Where did the idea come from? Uh, how did it take shape? What's what was the well? The I, I've always been, um, I would say, um, wisdom curious, philosophy curious. You know, um, I, but never, never took the dive. Um, philosophy was, you know, I, and maybe you feel this way too that we um, we get as far as I know one shot at this thing called life, but then sometimes halfway through it, you're like, no, I should have done that. Like I should have paid more attention in college and I should have, you know, majored in philosophy and, and studied it and imbibed it. And if you're an author, you get to, in a way, make up for those mistakes from your childhood and early adulthood. And that's what this was basically. Um, it's my attempt to wrestle with, 14 pretty awesome philosophers and bring them down to earth and um, and find their usefulness. And, mm. and it, it bothered me how philosophy has fallen out of favor with people, <laughs> I would say. And I knew enough enough about philosophy to know that it used to be um, the be-all and end-all. You know, uh, these philosophical schools in ancient Athens were were gymnasiums and uh, and book clubs and universities uh, and in some cases hippie communes all rolled into one, and you know they were great sources for for wisdom. And you know now we've got we've got these things. Um, again, I'm holding things up, 
Nobody can Telephone. see it. It's, it's an iPhone. Um, and this thing contains essentially all of uh, human wisdom in here um, that you, with a swipe of a finger, you can find out um, about the uh, Paleolithic age. You can find out about primates like your interest. You can, you can, um, you can find out about theoretical physics. Um, but we don't seem any happier and any wiser despite the prevalence of information and data. And uh, we're hungry for wisdom. And it seemed to me that philosophy is this untapped source of wisdom. That was a long-winded answer to a very simple question. <laughs> but that's that's the impetus for the book. And uh, we can talk about trains too and where they fit in. Yeah, yeah. Every chapter begins with uh, a scene on a train. It's a very interesting uh, way to structure the book. And I, I really want to sort of highlight one of the things you said there, which is that um, a, re- a theme that you return to again and again is what is the usefulness of this knowledge? Right. Right. Um, you use the word wisdom. I, I think in one of the, your early chapters, you talk about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And, and I think you describe, if I remember correctly, you describe wisdom as a muscle that needs to be um, used or yeah, it's a, it's a it's a skill. It, it's a skill. It's a yeah. how, not a what. And we are very much caught up in this day and age. I think in the what, in the, in the data bits, and not in the skill set that wisdom is. Um, there was a, a British, uh, a late British uh, musician who said that um, you know, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Right. So, so it's, it's, um, in a way I would say wisdom is applied knowledge, but I think it's more than that. In other words, I think that you don't, you don't just get wiser by knowing more and more. And we sort of, we, we conflate these a lot. Don't you think? We think mm. if someone is knowledgeable, they must be wise. But if you were going through a, you know, a personal life crisis, I mean, would you go to a college professor? You might, but you might find that professor just has lots of knowledge and no wisdom. And you might find someone who knows less, but is wiser. Um, so it's not it's not a continuum. I think that wisdom c- contains knowledge, but there's just one actually f- relatively small part of wisdom. Yeah, I agree. I, that you actually just described one of the key moments of my young life when I was uh, an undergraduate and I was planning to go to grad school and uh, I was you know on the sort of fast track to academia and I took a year off and hitchhiked from New York to Alaska and by the time I got to Alaska my entire life had changed because I had met so many people who were kind and self-sufficient and had healthy relationships and had beautiful houses that they had built themselves and they knew how to fix their truck and they picked up a stranger on the highway and took him home and fed him and took me back out to the highway the next morning. And I looked at my academic friends, the professors that I admired so much, and I realized these guys don't know how to change a light bulb. They're mean to strangers. They they, uh, look down on people who are not educated in their sense of the word as ignoramuses. And I just, you know, compared the quality of life that I saw and I realized, like, I don't want to be one and of And the guys. quality of wisdom. The people you yeah. met on the road were wise. Uh, the professors were not. Um, you know, ideally, you have both. Ideally, you're a knowledgeable person who's also wise. 
Um, but uh, philosophy from the ancient Greek philosophia means literally lover philo, of wisdom, Sophia, mm. lover of wisdom. And it doesn't, doesn't say anything about acquiring wisdom, actually, any more than the Declaration of Independence says anything about acquiring happiness. It's mm. life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? But it's right. up to you to, to catch it, as Ben Franklin said. So likewise with philosophy, it's sort of just this love of wisdom and not obtaining anything. And academia, correct me if I'm wrong, is often about obtaining kudos, um, published papers. Uh, you know, Socrates never published a single word. Yeah. Um, and yet he was wise. So, Do you think, is there a correlation between age and wisdom? <sighs> That's a good question. Um, if you're paying it, not necessarily, only if you're paying attention. If you're not paying attention in life, uh, you will die as unwise as when you were born. But if you're paying attention, you will uh, accumulate wisdom, I think. Um, but if you're not, there's no, in other words, age does not guarantee wisdom. But if you are paying attention and listening and uh, observing, the older person is going to be wise. And and different philosophies is sort of, I've arranged my book by sort of the course of a day um, from morning, uh, noon to dusk. And, you know, we need different kinds of wisdom in different phases of our life. And um, the Stoics, for instance, are really a wisdom of upper, late middle age to old age, I would say, because it's often it's about the hard knocks and how to recover from them. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, a, a, a person who's paying attention to life and grows older will be wiser than the young person, but there's no guarantee. Yeah. I, I see that of the 14 philosophers you chose, I, th I think only two of them are women. Three. And three? Three. So who we have? Uh, uh, we have uh, Simone de Beauvoir, probably the right. best known of the lot. Simone we have Seishon Agan who was oh, a uh, okay. Japanese courtier and observer of life, and I think philosopher from uh, Kyoto, Japan, in the year 1000 AD. And we have Simone Weil, uh, who was a theologian and philosopher um, in 20th century Europe. Right. Now, I don't raise that to, to give you a hard time. Uh, I raise that because... I think it's one of the great tragedies of humanity that the wisdom of women is largely lost to us because they weren't considered to be worth recording, you know, until right, relatively right. recently. And, and um, you know, I've wrestled with that, to be honest, when I was choosing these philosophers. Um, you know, I, I could have easily have had 14 dead white men only and many compendiums about philosophy and anthologies are just that, you know, you don't see women uh, and you don't see people from other cultures. So I, I do include Confucius and in, in Gandhi in my book. And, you know, the West has no monopoly on wisdom. Um, but for better or worse, philosophy has been defined in the Greek model. And that meant, you know, citizens of Athens for the most part. And it meant uh, white guys. Um so the canon is is skewed, and when you're writing a book like mine, it's well. I think what do you do? Do you do you try to unskew the canon by making it about, um, as a friend suggested to me, uh, fourteen women philosophers and the scumbag husbands who stole their stole their ideas? <laughs> you know, do you correct make it a corrective, 
or you know, do you include one? Or so I, I just cast my net far and wide, both geographically and gender-wise, and, and came up with this list. But yeah, three women. Did you consider um, Alan Watts or uh, any sort of Buddhists? Or? Yeah, um, I mean, Alan Watts, I've, I've read him and listened to him, and he's groovy, I think would be the word to say, because he was a 60s phenomenon um, yeah. and, a, and a fixture in San Francisco in his houseboat. Um, I, I would put him in a different category from the others. He... He was more of a popularizer, a spiritual figure, and mm. the line starts to blur uh, between spiritual figure and philosopher. Was the Buddha a philosopher? Was Jesus a philosopher? Yes, they were, but they are remembered today mainly as religious figures. Confucius really straddles the line. Um, Confucius was very much a philosopher. And if you Google Confucianism, it might come up as a philosophy. It might come up as a religion. Um, it's also cultural. Um, particularly in Asia, they don't have these hard distinctions. You know, if, you, if you've ever picked up a book on Indian philosophy and started to read it, you're like, wait, this isn't Indian philosophy. This is Indian religion. Well, mm. there is really no distinction between the two. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you do include Thoreau um, as a representative of the transcendentalists, I guess, which are also straddling in some ways religion. It's the worship of nature in some sense. Yeah, and he was uh, he was not quite as transcendental as his friend and mentor, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, because, you know, my understanding of transcendentalism is his faith in things unseen, which is a nice little phrase. I like that, faith in things unseen. But Thoreau, I conclude, and this is, you know, this is my take, he was believed in, he had faith in things seen, that he um, was an empiricist in the sense that he thought we get our knowledge through the senses. Uh, maybe there's more to that, but let's focus on that. Let's let's try to see beauty, right? And, and for him, seeing beauty, whether it was on Walden Pond or off in the woods or whatever it was, was a spiritual experience was a moral experience. And today we don't talk about beauty that way, right? We think of there's morality and then there's beauty. But for Thoreau and interestingly for, say, Shonigan, my Japanese philosopher, they were moral acts, you know, that the truly good person is someone who sees beauty and cultivates beauty. Mm. And we tend to separate them. We can, you know, you think of an artist who creates great beauty but is immoral. We can hold, we think, okay, that's fine. But for Thoreau and for the Japanese, um, they're often combined. To be a truly good person, you have to be an, an aesthetically attuned one. And to be aesthetically attuned, you have to be a good person. You look confused. I can't see that because it's a radio. No, <laughs> no, I'm not confused. I'm just thinking about um, the chapter on Epicurus and the the cultivation of pleasure and whether or not pleasure qualifies as a type of beauty. And then I was thinking on a larger scale, to, to what extent is your take on philosophy fundamentally subversive um, in a world in which we're very suspicious of true beauty and pleasure. And, um, you know, this, we have a very sort of ascetic uh, approach to life. I think most Americans don't realize that, but we yeah. do. Yeah. Um, now that, that's a good point. Um, 
Alan Watts, to bring him back into the conversation, once said, and I thought this is a great observation, that we don't live in a materialist culture. And in fact, we're anti-materialist because we, we throw stuff away, we, we buy cheap stuff, we, we don't appreciate the material things around us. So while the West is often accused of being materialistic, he argued, and I think rightfully so, that we are not materialistic groups. We don't value material things. I'm holding a mm. cup of coffee in my hand. Do I value the mug and the glass and really appreciate it? And, you know, in researching this book, I discovered that there have been people and cultures in the past who elevated beauty to a level way beyond the way we elevate it today in, in everyday beauty. So um, one scholar of this period in Japan I looked at um, called the Heian period, which is about 1000 AD, 900 to 1000 AD roughly. And um, he called it a cult of beauty, that uh, everything around Kyoto, which was the capital of Japan, then was about cultivating beauty, everyday beauty, so that they would, you know, they would, they were attuned to even the olfactory sense. So they would have like scent offs, like scent competitions, where you would try to concoct the best smelling incense. And uh, there's descriptions of how you would send a message to someone. You would have to have the right paper. They were big on paper and still are in Japan. And the right pen and the right little piece of silk to tie it with. And all this was hugely important. And today we just, you know, we bang out emails. We send crap through the mail. Um, and it's just amazing that there were these people in places where beauty was really important, you know, in, the, in everyday life. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's confusing because we do... Um, you know, there, there are certainly cults of beauty in the Western world, you know, the modeling, the fashion industry and, you know, all the sort of. But it seems like it, everything's being used to sell something. It's not to actually sit yeah. back. I mean, even and it's, fine it tends art. to be there's the I don't like this term, but the creative class, um, the uh, in other words, um to be uh, into fashion, you have to go to fashion school and and uh, be in the right places. Um, in other in, in Thoreau's time and in this time in Japan, I think anybody could practice the art of beauty or making beauty. I think it was not it wasn't professionalized. Right. So it's both the product they're selling and the people in the field have to pass certain muster before they are considered serious um, fashionistas. I guess. Yeah. Uh, have you studied philosophy or do you have, I have a degree now. or anything? I have now. <laughs> yeah, obviously. And, and that's why, I mean, I mean, I know you've got a, a, a PhD and everything, but I like the way, I like the way. Please call me doctor. Yeah, right. <laughs> that means I have wisdom, okay? I have a PhD in wisdom. <laughs> um, I like the way, uh, I, seriously, I've read about as much as your book, Civilized to Death, as you've read of mine. So the first three or four chapters. I like the way you write. At first, when I saw PhD, I have to admit, I, I'm like, I don't like to read books by PhDs, you know, because they're too dense and and they take themselves too seriously. And you you don't. Um, or and, and you, I can tell you've done the research, but then it comes out easy. You know, uh, my friend calls, calls it doing the high-low, you know, <laughs> you mm. can go high and low. And um, so when I guess I get when you ask the question, did you study philosophy I want to kind of reframe it so, so that we can uh, bring philosophy back down to earth. 
It would be like, you know, saying, did you, I understand that you made love the other night. Did you study sex? You know, well, no, I didn't. Well, then why did you have, you know, I mean, it, it should be this kind of thing. Um, you know, I understand that you cooked uh, pasta last night. Did you study cooking? Well, no, I didn't. So I want to bring philosophy back down to earth in the sense that anybody can do it, that yeah. you don't have to have to have studied it. When your do book it. does that, beautiful. Yeah, and, and that's and because when I told people I was writing a book on philosophy, Chris, they would get this like pained expression on their face. Like I said, integral calculus, and I was about to ask them a really difficult question. And I don't know how you know their books written exactly about how philosophy became such an arcane discipline so far removed from our everyday lives, but it didn't used to be that way. And I hope to, in some small way, resurrect it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I encourage people who are interested in these questions, but intimidated by the word philosophy to look at your book, because um, that's why I asked. I, I took a philosophy course in college as an undergraduate, and it quickly cured me of any curiosity I had about philosophy. It was well, that's horrible. So it, did you know that uh, Steve Martin, the comedian, majored in philosophy? No. As undergrad, yeah. And he, mm -hmm. as he likes to say, you know, if you major in any other subject, you know, pretty much whatever it is, uh, English literature, history, whatever, you, you, you forget it. Like the day you graduate, you just you wipe your hard drive clean. He said, if you major in philosophy, you've retained just enough to screw you up for the rest of your life. <laughs> so. Yeah, funny but true. And so there's this sense that philosophy is not only uh, impractical, but that it is dangerous. Um, that there's somehow, if you get all these big ideas in your head, you won't be able to tie your shoes or get a job or do the things we need to do. And and I think that's a shame. Yeah, I I was hoping that the course would um, teach me how to think about ideas and what I what I got from the course was that at least the way this particular professor was teaching it, philosophy was this very arcane, distant, impractical, and ultimately very uninteresting um, pursuit, which is exactly the opposite of what you're conveying in this book. Um, you got Socrates a bad professor. Express. That's all. Yeah, yeah, and and, and actually, she was a friend too. That was the uh, worst part. Uh oh, Socrates would not approve, Chris, because you know Socrates um, famously said that all philosophy begins with wonder, mm. and that's right. a great word, wonder. You know, and that's I realize what I try to bring to my work, to my books, my writings, you know, that sense of wonder. And as I explain in my book, you know, wonder is often conflated with curiosity. But I think there's a difference. I think curiosity has this restless quality to it. You know, you, you want to move on. Um, you're sort of chasing the, the next shiny object that comes into view. Wonder has almost a mystical sense, a connotation to it. The curiosity lacks, and it has this sense of lingering, you know, that you can sort of just take your time and wonder, you know. Um, you know, I was up in Vermont just yesterday, way far north of Vermont, and you could see the stars at night, and I thought, wow, these are the stars um, that Socrates and Plato and Aristotle saw, and they must have looked up and wondered, you know, what's going on up there. And we, we have, I think, as a culture, I think largely lost that, that sense of wonder in our in our daily lives. 
It's interesting you use the word both as a noun and a verb, and it's very different, right? To, to, to feel wonder is different from to wonder about something. That's true. And you can use it in both ways. You can say, um, I wonder, you know, um, where I can get some good dark chocolate. Or you can wonder, you know, what it is about dark chocolate that just makes your brain dance and makes you feel so happy. And um, it can it can have a sort of pedestrian meaning. I wonder what's going on there. Or it can have this big, grand meaning. And I think the big, grand meaning is what Socrates had in mind. And, right. you know, he was the original gangster of philosophy. <laughs> he got things rolling. Um, not the first philosopher, but the first one uh, to really investigate the sort of practical questions that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let me go through a few of the people that you um, that you focused on. Uh, How to walk like Rousseau. Uh, one of the first serious books I ever read was Rousseau uh, Confessions. I was probably twelve. That's My good age, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It, it scarred me. Um, why? Why walking like Thoreau? So I, I mean, wanted, sorry, Rousseau, Rousseau. Rousseau. Yeah, I wanted to. Um, I wanted these chapters minus the philosopher to sound like the sort of things that we need to know as human beings, right? Mm. How to get out of bed, how to wonder, how to see, how to listen, how to walk, and. It's something that's very basic to our humanity, walking. It's something that really hasn't changed um, since uh, the, uh, what's the phrase of the people you write about in, in Civilized to Death? Um, if we were to, Hunter-gatherers? Yeah, hunter-gatherers. Basically, yeah. they they walked pretty much the way we walk. Um, 300,000 years. Yes, and they walked further, I'm sure, and they walked better. Um, and their footwear was not nearly as expensive. It was much cheaper versions. Yeah. Um, and so there's something primal about it. And what is, you know, Rousseau's philosophy is essentially an early romanticism. Uh, I, like, I sum up his philosophy in four words, nature, good, society, bad. Um, and you would probably agree with that. And so in a way, walking, the act of walking is a way of, again, I know I'm using this phrase a lot, but bring the philosophy down to earth. Not some fancy ideas about society corrupting uh, our natural instincts, although that's part of the philosophy, but this act of walking. And he walked. He would walk 20 miles in a single day. He once walked um, some two, 300 miles from one European city to another in two weeks. And he would bring playing cards with him and jot down ideas that came to him as he walked. Hmm. And he was a he was an odd dude. Um, he had these weird compunctions. He would expose his buttocks to strangers, moon people, essentially. He had masochistic tendencies. He liked a good spanking. And he wrote about it in the confessions about how he would find pleasure in a good spanking by a woman. And um, and, you know, I, they're just they were all these philosophers are humans and flawed people. They're not saints. And so. um yeah, so I walked in the footsteps of Rousseau in Switzerland uh, to the places he walked, and I tried to get in touch with what he experienced, the pleasure he found in the act of walking. And he he was um, an introvert, I think, like myself, and 
could do well in society up to a point, but then he needed to to get away, and he got away by walking. Yeah, yeah Darwin did that as well. He had uh, a path through his garden that he would circumnavigate. The list is long of genius walkers. Einstein walked, yeah. Freud walked, um, Dickens walked through London in the middle of the night. Um, and even in the field of philosophy, Rousseau, Thoreau, Nietzsche, all great walkers. Um, so there's a definite connection and, and that brings me to the point that these guys and gals were physical, right? We tend to think of hmm. philosophy as happening all in the head. Um, but there's a, there's a strain of philosophy that says basically there's no division between head and heart. William James talks about this a lot. He talks about how we think that we are sad, then we cry, but really... Um, we think we're crying because we're sad, but rather we're sad because we're crying. That's mm. it. That the, the body leads, or at least they're in sync. And um, there's a field called phenomenology. And one of the proponents of this was a French, 20th century French philosopher named Maurice Merleau-Ponty. He says, and uh, I'm paraphrasing here, that if you say that you're angry, you know, if you were angry at me, let's say, where would that anger be located? It's not really in your head. It's not in the room. No, it's in your body. Your whole body experiences anger. And we know that studying PTSD victims that it's 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 a physical holding on to the pain. The body remembers and holds on to the pain. And um and so all these men and women they they walked, uh, they danced, they fought wars, they rode horses, they they made love. Um and they were physical beings, not just brains floating in the ether. Yeah, in your chapter, am I pronouncing Epicurus correctly? Is that yes, the... but don't say Epicurus. Yeah, yeah, I hear a lot of people say that. Yeah. Uh, that chapter is very much about pleasure, as I mentioned earlier. I, I have always found the Epicurean approach to life to resonate well with me. Um, but as you point out, it's not about complex expensive, uh, luxurious pleasures. It's about finding pleasure in the simplicity of life. Right. Um, so all philosophers are misunderstood, but probably none more so than Epicurus. Um, he's become the poster child for gourmet cuisine, thus mm. websites like Epicurus. And he was actually about the exact opposite. You know, he was about the simplest of pleasures. Um, he thought those were the easiest to obtain and less likely to make you hooked on them, right? So he saw the problem with a uh, a meal at the French Laundry or some super fancy restaurants that we used to go to um, is that you the pain of not having that meal afterwards is greater than the satisfaction you have from, from having it at the moment. So he said, you know, with good friends, and he was very big on friendship, even a pot of cheese could be turned into a gourmet meal. And... Um, yeah, he was about simple living, simple pleasures, uh, and kind of doing the math to figure out, like, is, you know, because he wasn't just, he wasn't a hedonist. It wasn't like just reach for pleasure. He would say, like, do the math. Like, friendship is pleasurable, but you might have short-term pain. A friend might ask you to do a favor that you don't want to do. But as a net sum, that friendship brings you more pleasure than pain. And if you're trying to make a decision, should I take this vacation, do this trip, whatever, Epicurus would sort of advise you to do the math and, and weigh the 
short-term pleasure, long-term pain, and we don't tend to give much thought for that. We reach for the pleasure that seems most gratifying in the moment. Well, that's why I, I suggested that a lot of these chapters are subversive, because if you do that calculation that you're talking about, um, not only uh, you have the expensive meal and then you miss it when you don't have it, you also have greater expectations because you're spending a lot of money, so you're less likely to actually be satisfied. Um, or to have an authentic experience because it's colored by your expectations, yeah. Exactly. And then let's add to the list, to the calculation, the amount of time of your life, irreplaceable time, that you trade for money in order to pay for that meal. Right. And the boss you have to please in order to get the money to pay for the meal. And so before you know it, you're a prisoner of that meal, right? And Epicurus thought that was that was ridiculous um, and that you were going to make yourself less happy as a result. And so his goal was uh, happiness, essentially. But he def defined happiness using the ancient Greek term ataraxia, which means literally absence of suffering. Right? Mm. So we don't normally think of, <clears throat> excuse me, as... Uh, of pleasure as being sort of an absence of something. We think of it as being a presence of something, you know. And and really what, what Epicurus is talking about is more serenity mm -hmm. and blissful feeling. And that is often just not feeling discomfort or unease or dis-ease. But instead we try to fill up our lives with pleasure and with variety, Right. That's the big thing is, and, and most of our consumer culture is built on the uh, supposition that pleasure varied equals pleasure increased. Um, a different kind of meal, right? Uh, different sexual partner, um, different gadget, uh, whatever it is. And Epicurus thought that was a, a, a big mistake because what you're trying to achieve is this sense of contentment and contentment can't be varied. You're either at ease or you're not. Um, you can't vary the ease that you're at, or you can't even increase or decrease it. Either you're free of this suffering, or you're not. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a very important calculation to learn how to make. By the way, you're talking to a guy who lives in a van. All right, so. Uh, <laughs> but is it a fancy van? It's you know it's it's uh, from from my perspective, it is at the sweet spot between you know comfort and and. Um, simplicity. It's not fancy enough that I can't park it in the street and have to worry about it and, or that it costs a lot to maintain or it's just, but it's comfortable. You know, there's this. Right. Well, if it was uncomfortable, then you would be focused on the discomfort and that would exactly. take away the pleasure. Yeah. Um, so you really live in a van. I do. I live in a van uh, in the summers and then in the winters, I, I normally go somewhere tropical. Right. Um, I don't know if that's going to be possible this year, um, but no, I don't have an apartment anywhere. I'm, I'm in a hotel room to record this interview. We rented a, a room so we'd have some solid Wi-Fi and I'm blasting out five interviews in three days. Um, so you were drawn to, so now I'm interviewing you, but that's, that's, that's fine. A, it's a yeah. conversation. All right. A conversation. Right. I don't, I don't like the word interview. I've stopped using it when I quit journalism. Uh, do you, uh, you read a few chapters in my book, but you didn't read them in order if you jumped ahead to Epicurus. So you must have right. been interested in him. Um, yeah. 
Well, I've, as I said, I've always resonated with that uh, approach to life. The first time I came across him, I, I was like, yeah, this guy got it. This Right. And he's this not, is, yeah, this but he's, to me. he's not taken seriously, unfortunately. Um, and the, the Stoics have sort of supplanted him. And uh, among people who are into philosophy right now, the Stoics are the, the flavor of the month, um, much more than Epicurus. And there's, a, there's, it's funny, there was a tussle back in the fourth century BC, you know, between the Epicureans and the Stoics, because they basically overlapped in ancient Athens. And even today online, you see Epicureans and Stoics going at it. It's kind of amusing. So uh, describe for people what the Stoic position would be on uh, matters. So the Stoics um, have found their way onto T-shirts, really, around the world, which is, if you've ever heard that, you know, God, please grant me the, you know, the courage to persevere and to change things I can, uh, the serenity to accept what I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. I mean... That is essentially Stoicism. It's the idea... So they were alcoholics? Uh, no, alcoholics were Stoics. Stoics were not alcoholics. Um, the 12-step program uh, borrowed from... It all... Christians, too. They all borrowed from the, from the, from the ancient Greeks. Um, you know, uh, someone... I forget who once described Christianity as Platonism for the masses, but that's another story. Um, so the Stoics basically... Um, it's a little book called Epictetus's Handbook, which is this thin little volume produced by this former Roman slave turned philosopher named Epictetus. And the first line is something like, there are things we can control and there are things we cannot. Super simple, right? And that essentially is Stoic philosophy. Um, and today uh, it, it takes it a step further and says, those things we can control are actually very few in terms of the material world. Um, but the things we can control are our reactions to things, our emotions. He thought that, they thought that our emotions were the product of faulty thinking. Hmm. Are you familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy? Sure, yeah. Based in Stoicism, direct right. line from Stoicism. The idea is that we uh, react in a, an emotional way that we think is automatic. Um, we stub our toe and we're upset for the rest of the day. And the Stoics would say, you felt pain when you stubbed your toe. That was a physical reaction. But you're brooding over the stubbing of your toe and what that means about your place in the universe. <laughs> That's all on you. And they thought that we had, you know, they, they used, they loved analogies. Their analogy is that we're all cylinders going down a hill, right? And gravity means we're all going to get down that hill, right? But you can't control gravity. You can't control the hill. But you can't control the shape of the cylinder you are. And a nice, smooth, well-formed cylinder is going to roll down that hill smoothly, while the jagged, lumpy cylinder is going to have a tougher journey. And they thought that this character and the way we react to events is the, the shape of our cylinder, basically. That's what we control. And we control that how? We control that with our minds and with uh, rational thought, I want to say, but they would call it the logos, which is sort of this, it's a term that, we get logic, the word logic from, but it really means a kind of spark of the divine, but in a very rational way. So they saw the world as being very rationally organized, but not in the cold Mr. Spock sort of way, um, that there was a kind of spiritual element to logic and to ration, rationality. And uh, when we... Uh, 
use our that power of the logos to control our reactions. So again, you stubbed your toe and you cry out in pain. They would say that's a proto-emotion. That's not an emotion yet. And then there's a split second where you choose whether to get all upset about the stub toe or not. And it happens so automatically, most of the time they would argue, that we think it's not under our control, but mm -hmm. it is. So you have to sort of slow down those moments and pause and say, wait a second, what's up to me? What's up to me in this situation and what's not? And we don't do that often enough, they say. Well, that, that's such um, a major thread running through Buddhism as well. This notion that you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to it. And yes. in Buddhism, of course, you have the, the meditation discipline in order to cultivate that awareness uh, that you need at that split second that you describe where you're choosing what your re response is going to be to the uncontrollable stimulus. I mean, the, the Stoics, there's, there are similarities. I mean, between Stoicism and Buddhism, Epicureanism and Buddhism, uh, and I discovered that back then, around 400, 350 BC, um, there were people traveling between India and Greece, and that some of it may have reached the Greeks. Um, the Buddha, of course, predated um, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Um, so there may have been something going on, but, um, you know, this we talked about serenity. That's a very Buddhist idea, absence of suffering. You know, what's mm. the first noble truth of the four noble truths is all is suffering, and the second is we suffer because of desire or attachment to things, right, to states of mind. Um, you know, Stoicism doesn't quite offer exactly the med the meditation practice that Buddhism does that so many Westerners find appealing. Um, but reading the philosophers, putting yourself in their shoes, it's a kind of meditation. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever think, I mean, I don't know... I mean, honestly, I'm I'm not even really that interested to know whether Buddhist teachings reached Greece, because it seems to me that these recurring themes in philosophical conjecture around the world tell us something more interesting than cultural exchange. They tell us that there are many ways to get to the top of the mountain, but we're all climbing the same mountain. Yes. Um, and it, it, I mean, you're right. It's a curiosity that they may have been talking to each other, it's probably more interesting if they weren't and that they reached similar conclusions. Yeah. I mean, I had never heard of Epicurus when, you know, when I started thinking that way, right? Like, what what is this pleasure going to cost me? And how, you know, you know, the, the metaphor I often use, I've used it in books and on the podcast many times is, um, you know, I'm drinking a bottle of wine right now that costs about 15 bucks. And I've never had, I've had wine that costs 10 times that much, but I've never had wine that tasted 10 times as good as this. So, you know, there's this point of diminishing returns that we reach very quickly, I think, uh, with most things. You buy an expensive car, two months later, you're just driving a car. You don't remember how much, how great it is, you know? Right. So Epicureanism is largely a philosophy of the good enough. Right, yeah. which we don't yeah. we don't like to talk about in America. We think we have to have the best, right? Um, not or not just the good, but good enough sounds like a cop out. But I've met modern day Epicureans who say good enough is a great philosophy. It's you know uh, two buck Chuck that two dollar wine um, by Charles Shaw. That's it's good enough, um, and it's not only that you've saved money that you can spend on other things. 
It's that I think you've not invested so much of your being into that wine being really, really good. Um, you know, I've written books about happiness, and one thing I learned early on is that expectations are the enemy of happiness. And yeah. that's, in a way, what a lot of these philosophers are talking about. We when, Once we start to bring our expectations on board, we, I mean, expectations about how, the results of an experience, we no longer experience that moment. Mm. Um, we're projecting onto it. Uh, we're complicating matters. The happiest people around the world tend to be those with the least, uh, the fewest uh, expectations. And there have been studies that show that, you know, if you give people a piece of music to listen to, some classical music, and you tell one group to, you know, just listen to the music. But as you're listening, try to really, you know, boost up your happiness. And you tell another group to just listen to the music and see what happens. It's that second group that will then show a bigger boost in happiness mm. because they haven't brought the expectations to it. Mm, interesting. Do you find, speaking, you know, following up on this notion that many different philosophical traditions seem to be explaining the same things or, or seeking the same things. It often occurs to me how interesting it is that some of our most advanced thinkers seem to be showing us ways to stop thinking. That's, that's a good point. Um, and, and a lot of these, the philosophers that I investigated and befriended, I would say, reached that conclusion. Um, Rousseau, toward the end of his life, basically stopped thinking and um, went to an island and lived there for a while and just existed. Um, Schopenhauer uh, questioned the value of books. And he read a ton, but he said, sometimes you have to stop reading and put the books down. Nietzsche was similar. Um, these were people who read a lot and thought a lot, but also recognized the value of not thinking, which is not the same as not doing anything, you know, um, because a lot of what we, we mistake for thinking is really ruminating, mm, the Stoics would point. say. Yeah. And um, Simone Weil, I think, would be the best example of this, right? So she her chapter is how to pay attention like Simone Weil. And she was really, I think, the philosopher of attention. But she defined it very differently from the way we do. She thought there was a huge difference between concentration and attention, right? So when we are concentrating, we have a furrowed brow, our muscles tense, we sort of narrow the scope of our vision, we hone in on something. And she thought this was an absurd position to be in, that you were, you were not ready to receive anything in that mode. So her notion of attention, which is a, a fairly spiritual view, I think, is that you're in a sort of passive receptivity mode. You're, you're, it's a way of listening carefully. So when um, you stop thinking, in a way, it's like stop talking and listen, is what these mm. philosophers are talking yeah. about. Yeah. And she saw concentration as talking and the kind of uh, um, patience she was talking about as listening, really, really listening to one another. And I think that gets back to the original point that you were making about wisdom and the difference between knowledge and wisdom. So much of wisdom appears to be having the presence of mind to just shut the hell up and notice 
what's going on around you and within you and uh yes you know, that and to attention. and to be willing to question assumptions about your life right i think that was what socrates brought to the table right this notion that we often go after these things in life success money whatever it is and have never really stopped to question the assumption that it will bring us happiness that it's worthwhile um in Socrates' time in ancient Athens, he would go around and, and ask a, a general to define, you know, what courage is or a poet to describe what beauty is. And they, they couldn't, right? Yeah. I mean, after interrogation from him, and he made a royal pest of himself. So um, part of the, that stopping and listening is, is questioning our assumptions and uh, experiencing questions, not just reaching for answers. And and within the iPhone data age we live in, we think it's important to get to answers as quickly as possible. We don't seem to, we don't seem to appreciate the value of sitting with a question, right? Like you and I could spend ninety minutes just sitting with one question: What is beauty, or what is the good life? Whatever, and we we could sit with it for ninety minutes, the entire time we're conversing, and not reach a definitive conclusion at the end because. Often Socrates in his dialogues, they did not reach a conclusion. But it would be very satisfying in a way because it would be open-ended. Like if we weren't showing off, um, like, oh, uh, you know, courage is this because I read Thucydides, you know, or you know, this idea of just trying to... Sh so much of what passes for conversation is just two people showing off their knowledge and, and just passing each other right by. Well, no wonder. Look at our educational system. It's it's based on knowledge. It's not based on wisdom, right? Like, what year did this happen, and who was the general? And you know, right. give me the facts and give them right. to me but on I, Thursday. Right, but I think that it. I don't know if it's the education system that produces the society that creates that, or which comes first. But but that we see answers as the ultimate good and not questions, right? And Voltaire said to know a man find out what questions he asks, not what answers he gives. And we think a question that isn't answered is that you failed if you haven't answered it. Uh, One of my favorite quotes, uh, and I don't remember who said it first, a lot of people have said it, is honor those who seek the truth and be suspicious of those who claim to have found it. Um, you know, yeah, I, I think that's, that's true it, because that's, you're, that's a closed mind that you... You've you've got the answer, and then you're you're finished. I mean, uh, Picasso actually said um, computers are stupid because they only give you answers. So, you right. know, there there is uh, there's truth to that. So, if you could introduce, now I was I was going to ask you the question if you could have dinner with any three of these characters that you've written about, who would they be? But I think a more interesting question for me is. If you could introduce two of them to each other for their benefit, not mm. for yours, that if you could introduce Montaigne to, you know, forget language and, and all those things. Right, right. Who do you think would benefit the most from knowing one another of, of these 14 philosophers? Oh, boy. That's a yeah, good question. Um Hmm. We befriended them, right? And isn't it great when we can share friends with with other friends, you know? 
Yeah. And Thoreau would probably, nobody would want to hang out with him. He was obnoxious. He, he was a real piece of work. He was called. Uh, but actually, Schopenhauer was worse. Um, <laughs> yeah. Nietzsche he was, was a, a piece of work. He was too. a grump. Um, yeah. And, uh, but he had this soft side. So, I mean, it, in a weird way, I would. <laughs> I would introduce the German philosopher Schopenhauer to the uh, Japanese courtier and cultivator of beauty, Seishon again, um, because, um, you know, Japan, and I lived in Japan for a number of years, really taught me how to just shut the F up for a while and just be, you know, because yeah. it is not a very verbal culture, but it is a very physical, aesthetic culture, right? That they communicate through objects and beautiful gifts, if you've ever seen a, had a bento box and the way it's arranged. And um, I think Schopenhauer, who read so much, and who was such a grump and a misanthrope, um, and um, but had this interest in Buddhism, I think he and, and Shonagan would get along and maybe even have a fling together, quite possibly. Um, but I, I think, you know, and he was one of the first people, Chopin, we're talking 19th century Germany, to take an interest in Eastern philosophy. Oh. And so he, and, and I went to uh, to Frankfurt to where his worldly possessions are contained, not in a museum. He didn't get a museum. He gets just like a few bins in a, in a university. And, you know, I it's pretty cool to touch things that these people touched you know it's a little creepy but it's also cool and and he had a book of an early translation of uh, the bhagavad-gita the hindu poem uh into a western language into latin actually which he read uh and so he he had this early interest in these eastern ideas and at a time when you know now we just take it for granted you know you go to a bookstore there's copies of the bhagavad-gita and buddhism and hinduism but yeah the 19th century it was it was pretty weird to you know it was just out, out there, no hardly anyone in the West knew about these religions and these philosophies. So, um, I think they'd have a lot to say to each other. Yeah. You talked in the book about um, being <clears throat> propelled into this this study and, and these these characters, uh, these wise people, uh, by a sense of melancholy. Uh, and and wanting to to try to escape it or or understand it better, how how has that gone? Um, I don't think the goal of philosophy is happiness per se, but it's a it's a good side effect. It can be. Um, I think it. I tried to bring these people to life because they were imperfect people, and a lot of them did suffer from depression. Um, it, it's a pretty common thread. There really are no perfectly happy philosophers. There's always that sense of discontentment, and, and it varies. Um, but, you know, uh, Thoreau, you know, I read his his journals. Not I read Walden, of course, but I also read a lot of his journals, two million words, 14 volumes. And he opens himself up on the page, and he's kind of self-effacing and, and self-attacking, really. He says, I've never met a worse person than myself. And and um, and even Marcus Aurelius, this Roman emperor and Stoic, um, also had these bouts of self-loathing, which I go through also. And it's reassuring to know 
simply on a very basic level, Chris, to know that a Roman emperor, a great German philosopher, the great giant of American literature, Henry David Thoreau, which is filled with self-doubt and self-loathing, and um, and they persevered. So that's um, that's satisfying, um, and I think just wrestling with these ideas about how to live a good life and expanding the realm of possibilities uh, is uplifting. Mm. There is a field of philosophical therapy. Are you familiar with that? No. So this is basically, um, there are philosophical counselors out there who take courses, studied philosophy, but take courses particularly in counseling through philosophy. So instead of going to a therapist who is going to examine you from a Freudian or behavioral point of view or cognitive behavioral therapy, um, they will say basically, what would Socrates do? What would Plato do? Uh, what would Thoreau do? Whoever it is. And... Um, and I don't know that it has not fully caught on. Um, I think partly because just philosophy is hard and it, it's not good at the quick fix for if you're feeling down, although it can help with that. Um, I don't know if I've answered your question. I would say uh, that I am, I don't know if I'm less melancholic or just more uh, at ease with my melancholy, knowing <laughs> that I'm not alone and... Yeah. Um, and knowing yeah. that that um, just the act of wrestling with big ideas can sort of ease the melancholy itself. Yeah, yeah, I've I've had a similar kind of progression. I, I think when I was young, I I was under the impression that if I thought hard enough and read enough and traveled enough and experienced enough, I'd be able to answer some of these fundamental questions that I had that were burning away at me. And um, I got older and I just stopped asking. And that was... I, I would say, I would reframe it and not in terms of answering these questions, but reframing them. And I think a lot of philosophy, like religion, to be honest, at its best, is is looking at the things differently. I mean, Henry uh, Miller once said about travel that one's destination is never a place, but a new way of seeing things, mm. which is one of my favorite quotes, not only about travel, but I think about life. And I think that's the goal of philosophy, too, is a new way of looking at things. So instead of actually putting philosophy in the same basket as science and seeing as inferior to science, although science came from philosophy, right? Um, instead of looking at it that way, you can look at philosophy as what um, author Daniel Klein calls life-enhancing poetry, life-enhancing poetry. And you look at the philosopher as more playing the role of kind of a novelist in a way. Like you read, if you read a good novel and you put it down, you see the world a bit differently. And reading good philosophy has a similar effect, but it gives you, unlike the novel, more of a superstructure to hang things on. And you begin to see things a bit differently. Um, you know, th getting back to Thoreau, his he, he played with vision and played with the angles. So he would look at Walden from different angles, day and night and on the pond and off the cliff. And sometimes he would bend over and look at the world inverted between his legs um, and just to see things differently. And I love the, yeah. And you did that. Right? I did you that did. in the head rush, <laughs> blood rush to my head and I nearly passed out. But, um, I think the point though, is that that is the role of, of philosophy, not to 
answer mm. these questions, but to reframe them and to look, look at things a bit differently. Not 180 degrees, just 10 or 20 degrees. And sometimes that makes all the difference. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. Uh, I, I think a lot of people have used psychedelic drugs for that same triangulation to, to get a different view on the familiar. Right, but they uh, wouldn't say that they answered questions by taking psychedelic no, drugs. Right? No, just they, they asked the question in a more interesting way. You know, I think that's... That is, that's very well said. Ask, ask a question in a more interesting way. Um, and I know that in our transactional world, that doesn't necessarily get you a big salary, you know, asking questions in more interesting ways. But, um, you know, it's, it's important. Very important. Listen, Eric, I've taken an hour of your time. and uh, It wasn't I, enough. It wasn't enough. See? It's never enough. See, well, we haven't you, answered questions, have we? When you were saying we could, we could, you know, toss an idea around for 90 minutes, I was thinking, how about 90 days? You know, <laughs> one of the true. things I love about, about living in the van, I'm in Montana right now. Um, and yesterday I was sitting by a fire next to a stream in the middle of nowhere with a few close friends. And uh, we're not playing music and we're not reading books. We're not listening to podcasts. We're just hanging out talking. And... Uh, you know, it's we've got books, we've got I've got movies on my hard drive of my laptop and I go through a whole summer. I don't watch a single one of them. Uh, and for some reason, wow. every time I'm about to set off on the trip, I load up my hard drive with movies and films I want to see. And I never get to them because the immediate is so beautiful and so consuming, you know. And, you know, Socrates was big on conversation. He thought you should, philosophy should be practiced with the buddy system, you know, mm. and that just what we're doing here, having conversation um, can produce, you know, new ways of asking questions. And, um, yeah, I don't want to just sound like I'm bemoaning modern life. That, that was your job, right? My job, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we, we have... Um, we have lost that art of just shooting the shit, you know, just that's what Socrates did. Doesn't sound fancy, but, um, you know, we would time the call. We would say we got to get off and we or watch the agenda items. You know, what's, what are the next action steps? You know, we would say, you know, let's stay in touch and just taking an idea and batting it around for 90 minutes or 90 days or 90 years. It's, that's not bad. And there's a reason it feels good. You know, it's our species has been doing it forever. Right. Since before the agricultural revolution, correct? Here, here. All right. All right. Well, I encourage people. When's the book out, by the way? It's out August 25th. August 25th. Just around the corner. All right. Um, and cool. uh, we didn't talk about trains, but there are trains in here, too, if you're a train head. Lots of trains. Um, yeah. I love trains. There you go. I love sleeping on trains. It's one of my favorite things. It is. And you probably sleep better on a train than you do on, on land. Do you, you sleep read? The, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Do you sleep in, in the van or no? That's. A, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got a whole... It's, a, it's basically a bedroom on wheels. It's got a little sink, you know, to... I've got a 30-gallon water tank, so you can brush your teeth and wash your face. And uh, there's, there's actually a shower out... It's you have to open the back of the van and you have an outdoor shower, hot water. Um, so so yeah, when the, not, the apocalypse comes, you're all set. You just drive around in your van. I'm all set, you know, as long as the there's still diesel fuel and, oh, uh, man, right. you know, Costco. <laughs> so, I mean, 
Epicurus would say you need to cut down some of those entanglements. Yeah, yeah. Well, I bought some land in Colorado, uh, and I'm waiting to see how 2020 plays out before I decide whether to build anything on it or not. Um, you know, might have to escape to some somewhere far underground away. Underground bunker. Uh, or an underground bunker, exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, this will come out around the time uh, that the book's out, so it's available. It's called... The Socrates Express or just the Socrates? Socrates Express. The Socrates Express. Life lessons from dead philosophers. Yeah, yeah. Um, Very well written. Philosophers never really die, Chris. They live on in the minds of others. There you go. So. Especially, I, I, we didn't we didn't talk about Montaigne, but he's one of my favorites. I I did I haven't read that chapter yet, but I'm pretty sure I know what it's about because I've read his. Thoughts on death. I actually wrote about his thoughts on death in Civilized to Death. There's a whole chapter on how we die versus how hunter-gatherers die. I'm going to have to resume. I tell you what, let's make a deal right here. I'll finish your book if you finish mine. <laughs> well, I don't want anyone to read my books if, they, if they're not, not feeling it. I'm feeling it. You know what it. I mean? Because, I mean, I, I'm going to read yours anyway. I'm going to finish it. But... I, I'm very careful about that. When I give people a book, I always tell them, I'll never ask you if you've read this because I don't want them to be in a position where they have to. Should, and, reading should not be an obligation. Well, especially, you know, I've written two books, one about sex and, right. and one about the, you know, the sort of uselessness of civilization. And those are not books that you should read when you're not in the mood. You know, there's a moment when you're going to go, now's the time to read Sex at Dawn. You know, my wife just left me and I want to know why. So, <laughs> Well, so. I, I will end on the uh, my, one of my favorite quotes from a French philosopher named Maurice Reisling, who said, sooner or later, life makes philosophers of us all. Uh, yeah. And sooner or later, we're going to read Sex at Dawn. And <laughs> so, you just have to, it's all about timing. You know, It's all about timing. Exactly. Hey, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks. This me was too. Not, this was not work. This was fun. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed it too. Uh, I sure did. Eric Weiner, The Socrates Express. Excellent book if you want to get into some philosophical thinking. Don't forget, if you want to enter the giveaway for the sauna to cruise just head over to my instagram account and you'll see uh where how to sign up for it and what the details are uh we're only shipping it to the u.s please i feel for you people overseas but uh, not this time use chris ryan at checkout at lilo.com to get 20 percent off any full-priced sex toy anything you want so whatever you're into check them out lilo.com thanks for listening here's mom and carsey Weird segue from sex toys to mom, but sometimes that happens. Okay, mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of t-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. 
He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation, running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say? <laughs> When everyone we've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. We're gonna die one day. It's a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.